great to see you. Great to be back. I figured we would open uh, our time together in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather in your name with like-minded friends to study your word. Uh, This weekend especially, we are mindful of uh, 20 years ago on 9-11, probably the most traumatic event, well, certainly in my lifetime, maybe in the lifetime of many here. Um, We are grateful for the ways you've led us in the past 20 years. We're grateful for those who have uh, sacrificed. Of course, we remember those who were lost that day. As we begin a new semester together, we pray for your wisdom and guidance and for the laughter and learning and fellowship that will happen in this place. All these things we pray in Christ's name and the people of God said, amen, amen. Okay, so here's my new project. The, the, the idea with the Bible in 50 was to do kind of an overview of scripture in 50 different classes over two years. And I, I, I wanted to do that because I had taught Disciple 1 many, many years ago. And I love Disciple 1. But that is a massive investment of time for everybody involved. That's like an hour and a half in the classroom and a lot of reading ahead of time. And yeah, you get through the whole canon, but um, and you do it in 36 weeks or whatever. But I figured we would take it a little different pace. (laughs) The downside of that approach was we had like one class to get through all of Genesis two years ago. So my new idea is to do the opposite of that, Bible in 50. So we're going to do an Old Testament um, book in the fall, a New Testament book in the spring, and I've got it mapped out from now to retirement to do the whole Bible, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) My, 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 yeah, my retirement, yeah. Honestly, I've I've mapped it out that many years, and I I think we can get through all that in in 20 years. So uh, all y'all are young and spry. We'll be together for 20 years. That's the project. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, it'll give us a little bit more time to get through all these books and take a much deeper dive than we were able to in the Bible in 50. So when you signed in, if you did have a chance to sign in, you got a, a syllabus about the way the, the fall is going to shake out. So you see here, we're going to tackle this in nine weeks, and we're going to do some introductory stuff tonight. We're going to read the first two chapters of Genesis tonight. I know that is well-worn territory for probably everyone in the room, but it'll just kind of set the stage for the rest of our time together. We will have a week next week where we're going to talk about the rest of what's called the prehistory. I'll talk about that here in a minute. We're going to spend two weeks on the Abraham cycle. And if you are a member of the church, and if you were here in August, we spent four weeks going through the story of Abraham and Sarah. So um, we'll... I think I'm going to focus on stuff we didn't focus on during that sermon series to the extent that we can. And then we're going to spend uh, two weeks on Jacob and three weeks on the Joseph cycle. And that last Sunday will probably be somewhat of a a recap wrap-up as well. What I've got written up here are uh, three panels of things. First, the sources and criteria for how Methodists read the Bible. We're going to cover that first. Uh, Then there's the timeline of what Genesis covers and what's kind of going on history and world history at the time and then the four sources of what's called the pentateuch which is the first five books of the bible this is what scholars think how who scholars think wrote these books in particular uh we're focusing on genesis clearly we'll talk about that so how do methodists read the bible so i'm guessing not everyone here has been a methodist their whole life well i know not because i haven't been (laughs) so i know we got at least a catholic or two in here 
I'm guessing we have some former Baptists somewhere. Um, okay, awesome. And maybe a Presbyterian. All fantastic. Okay, you got any Lutherans in here? Excellent. Okay, this is great. Any non-denominational folks? Um, and then a bunch of Methodists, right? So it's really important to get clear on the front end how Methodists approach Scripture because um, it does affect the way you interpret what you're reading. So if you are in a um, what would be considered like a fundamentalist tradition, then you would consider the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. I'm, this, all of this is descriptive. None of it is with judgment. I'm just describing how we all read these texts. If you were raised Catholic, first of all, you didn't have a Bible in the pew. Uh, you read a little missalette, and you read it through the lens of what's called the magisterium of the church, like the official teaching of the church. Uh, if you are a Lutheran, you approach the Bible as um, the, one of the mantras of the Reformation was sola scriptura. All you need is the Bible. Methodists have actually four sources and criteria for our theological task. And this is all from the discipline of the United Methodist Church. And I think it's actually pretty helpful. Um, it used to be called the quadrilateral, the Westland quadrilateral, quadrilateral. If you've been around for a while, you may have heard that phrase. The discipline doesn't have that word anymore because it implies like equality between, like some people would say it mutes the authority of scripture, which is not, it's not intended to do. Um, but the words in the discipline that remain there are that uh, everything that we need for salvation, all things necessary for salvation, are revealed in Scripture. Uh, then our theological task is illumined by tradition. It is tested by reason and then vivified or made alive in personal experience. And what this means is that we don't just open the Bible and expect it to automatically tell us how we should be living our life. It does. It is a recipe for living, certainly, and it is the most important book in any of our lives. If you've been with me in Bible study, you know I absolutely believe that. But our theological task involves more than just the Bible. Wesley believed, and Methodists affirm, that, in fact, our theological task is uh, also illumined, is the word um, enlightened, or light is shed on our theological task through the tradition of the church, like the, the Holy Spirit continues to work. So the Holy Spirit was working in those early church councils where we got our creeds. The, uh, the Holy Spirit was working in the Reformation where we kind of rethought some things. The Holy Spirit was working in the 20th century when we decided ah, it might be okay to ordain women. Um, this Holy Spirit continues to work today. So we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to work in all of our lives. And obviously the tradition of the church has something to say about how we not only interpret scripture, but how we make sense of our other doctrines that aren't necessarily in scripture. We also believe that God gave us a brain for a reason. When I became a Methodist, I, I thought that was one of the most life-giving affirmations that I heard, that I was not expected to check my brain at the door. So what do we? How, can we believe in dinosaurs since dinosaurs aren't in the Bible? Well, of course we can, <laughs> because the, the Bible is not the only source of knowledge that God has given us, right? I mean, we can affirm the fact that God works through science and medicine and all kinds of other places. So that when we look at Genesis 1 and 2 today, we can use our reasoning ability to see these two very different narratives told two very different times that make the same theological point, but that um, it, you really have to try hard to read them literally side by side 
and assume they literally are saying the same thing. Does that make sense? We'll get there. And then uh, this experience bit is that ultimately our faith is not a living faith if we don't take these words of Scripture that reveal the capital W Word of God who's, uh, with whom we have a relationship that affects the way we live our life. And so um, when we say in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is the creator of the universe and everything in it, and when we read that God expects us to play a role, for example, in the stewardship of creation, then our theology comes alive when we take that seriously and participate with the creator of the universe in caring for the creation God made. Right? I'm not going to get all ecological tonight, but that was an example. So it's, it's all four. In Protestant Bibles, there are 66 books. Um, they were, those books were written over the course of 1,500 years or so, and we don't know how many authors and editors touched this book. We know that the Bible is the inspired word of God, so that God is speaking through it, but in terms of the people who actually um, collected these stories, first orally and then in writing, 40-ish authors maybe, and we don't know how many editors. Not every book that says it's written by somebody was actually written by that person. We've talked about that a fair amount, and that's not really for this study in Genesis, but um, it'll be relevant here in a second. And the word itself, the Bible, means it's, uh, it comes from a Latin word, uh, Biblia, ta Biblia, the books, plural. So that it is, uh, it is better to say, according to Genesis, or according to this author of Genesis, such and so, it's better to say that than to say the Bible says X, Y, and Z, because that's like saying the library says X, Y, and Z. The library says a lot about a lot of different subjects, in some places contradictory uh, conclusions about the same matter. So too with the Bible, believe it or not. Now some things um, its Bibles are clear on and consistent on, but there's my point is that it's multivocal, and um, part of the work of the way I approach Bible study, which is historical. Uh, historical criticism, um, that's a technical term, not, I'm not critiquing the Bible, but interpreting the Bible, is based on the assumption that there are a lot of different voices in here, and it's good to know as much as we can about those original voices so that we can understand what the author was saying to their original audience, and then we interpret that for our place and time. Does that make sense? So, any questions about how Methodists approach the Bible? The, the go-to example here for me always is uh, ordination of women. So the Methodist Church has been ordaining women for 60 years. You can make a strong case from Scripture that that is a good thing. Uh, you can also make a kind of um, flat application argument that we shouldn't do that based on a couple passages of Paul. Well, if we didn't look at Scripture in a, in a holistic way, we may still be among the vast majority of Christianity that does not ordain women. But that's not what we do. Another example would be slavery. Uh, in the 19th century, there were biblical arguments that were made that slavery is okay. Well, and there's lots of rules about how to keep slaves in, in Scripture. Um, ultimately, we interpreted the gospel, and Wesley specifically interpreted the gospel, he was an early abolitionist, to mean, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot possibly be okay with owning another human being. That's totally out of bounds. While people who thought they were being faithful argued from the Bible that slavery is okay. So it's, it's um, really important to be clear 
about all of our sources and criteria. So when, like on the slavery issue, on the ordination issue, we probably lean heavily there on reason <laughs> that clearly women and men are equal. Clearly women are called to preach the gospel. Um, yes, there are a couple places where Paul says, I don't let women talk in church and women should shut up. I don't let women have authority over men. I mean, these are, I'm, I'm quoting passages of scripture now. Um, and we're like, nah, yeah, it does say that. That's true. And we think that's wrong. <laughs> that's kind of a radical stance, really. Does that make sense? Okay. So Genesis literally means beginnings, and it is the easily the most epic book of the Bible. Uh, there are 50 chapters <laughs> that take us from the creation of the universe all the way to 1500 B.C. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of material covered uh, in a very short amount of time. The first 11 chapters are what's called or what scholars refer to as the prehistory. So that's before the call of Abraham. Once we begin the call of Abraham, that's kind of our official, the official beginning of our salvation history. And then we get into much more kind of historical stuff. But the first 11 chapters are the vast majority of this creation to like all the way covering a lot of that dash right there. Historically, from roughly 9,000 BC to 3,500 BC, that's the stone age. If you're, you know, if you're a student of history, if that means anything to you, between 3000 and 2000 BC roughly is the early Bronze Age. And there are all kinds of things going on in um, the ancient, like the Mesopotamian world, how civilizations evolved in the Fertile Crescent. All of that is relevant to um, how Abraham shows up in life as a herder, uh, a wealthy herder, who then gets moved to the promised land by God. But that's a very different world, obviously, than we live in. The patriarchal age, patriarchal period, begins roughly, these are rough dates, 1900 to 1300 B.C. And so Genesis covers the patriarchal period after we get past, like, the prehistory stuff from, say, 1900 to roughly 1500 B.C. when the tribes are in Egypt. Exodus picks up the story from Pharaoh on. So there's a lot of stuff, to, a lot of material to cover. What we're going to focus on throughout the next nine weeks is the historical um points, I mean, the theological points that are being made in the context of this, of this history. At this stage of, uh, of historical biblical interpretation, most scholars, the predominant theory is that the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, were written by four different authors, or uh, there are four primary sources for the material in these first five books of the Bible. So the first one that says Yahwist, and scholars abbreviate that J from everything's in German and biblical scholarship. So J is the Y in, in German. That's the earliest of the sources. And Genesis 2, which we're going to read here in a minute, is from this earliest of sources. These stories were probably written down during the time of Solomon. So Solomon is in the 900s, the late 900s, uh, high 900s. Like late 900s is actually like 905. So or I guess early 900s is the way to say that. So the, dis the distance in time between, oh, you know, creation all the way th to 1500 BC from then to when it was actually put down on papyrus in Solomon's era is still 600 years. So think about 600 years ago. What would that be? 1400s? When did Columbus come? 1500. So before, even before Columbus came to America, 1492, that's when it was, right? So, uh, we, that's like us writing a sacred book about what happened before Columbus came to America. Like, just to keep things in perspective. So these stories had been passed down 
from generation to generation and were part of the oral tradition that then get put down on paper early in this history, but late with regard to the history it's recording. Kind of crazy, right? I mean, it kind of blows your mind, really. I listened to, um, do you guys like Bill Bryson, the author Bill Bryson? He wrote, um, yeah, A Walk in the Woods, A Short History of Nearly Everything. And so I listened to A Short History of Nearly Everything, which kind of is like a, just a history of the universe, like a real brief history of the universe. And uh, the sense of scale in time when you're talking about like the history of the earth is really hard to wrap your head around. This isn't quite like that, but it's not far from that. I mean, that's a, uh, we, we tend to think of like when we think of, I don't know how, well, I'll, I'll speak how I used to think of the Bible. I kind of always assumed, for instance, that not because anybody told me this, by, by the way, but just because it's what I had in my head, that somebody was following Jesus around, writing stuff down as he did it. No, 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 no. Decades, decades and decades passed before that stuff got written down. Much more so here. No, There was no scribe following Abraham around saying, what did God say again? <laughs> Sarah, what, what do you think about this? These are inspired texts that later very faithful people put down on paper for us. Um, but we just have to remember this isn't history in the sense of in the way we think of history. Okay, so Yahweh is the earliest, Genesis 2, which we're going to get to. The Elohist is the next earliest. That's during the time of the northern kingdom. So um, when David so, uh, unified the kingdom, he, his son Solomon kept it together. The, the United Kingdom of Israel lasted those two kings, and that was it. Then it fell apart after Solomon. So under Solomon is when the Yahwist material was written. Under some later time after the fall of the North, uh, after the split uh, between Israel and I'm getting ahead of myself, but later is when the Elohist material was written down. I don't think we're going to get in the weeds on their theological emphases, but I'll just tell you now that the Elohist author who was writing in the northern kingdom and not Jerusalem emphasized the covenant over the monarchy because the monarchy is in Jerusalem. So um, we'll parse that out if it makes sense when we get there, but that's not too far after the Yahwist. The Deuteronomist author, author of Deuteronomy and some other material in the first five books, was after the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, but before the exile. We're not exactly sure when, but this would be centuries after the Elohist author was writing. And then the priestly author was during the exile, maybe even a little bit after. And that's actually when Genesis 1 was written. <laughs> so this was in the 500s. This was in the 900s. And we're talking about material from creation to 1500 BC. And specifically in Genesis 1 and 2, we're talking about creation. So the earliest words written down in the Bible as, as it comes to us were actually the farthest away <laughs> from the story that it's trying to tell. And the next chapter, which is Adam which we'll read, is the earliest of all these documents written. I mean, that's all kind of mind-bendy stuff, I think, um, which is why it's helpful to have all of these sources and criteria as we're trying to make sense of this material. So that we end up, you know, if questions like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Wow, that's not, that's not the concern of this author. <laughs> How did Cain and Abel come from, like, 
there are lots of complicated questions you can start asking if you look at it, if you come at it from kind of a rational, postmodern, post-enlightenment perspective. But that's not where how these documents were written. They were written inspired by God centuries after the fact in order to make theological points. Nobody's running for the doors. Oh, wait, Beverly, she's out. She's like, I'm out of here. That's enough of that. That's crazy talk. I know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pause there. Um, Alex, can we wind back the tape? I don't remember. <laughs> um, so these are human authors that are inspired by God to make theological points. Yeah, so, so yeah, thank you. Inspired by God writing centuries after the events that they're recording to make theological sense of events in our salvation history. They were not writing a history book. Now, there are books that, um, like Chronicles, that, that are, attempt to arrange material in a way that, make, that form a coherent history. First and Second Kings are trying to tell the story of the, of the monarchy. Um, but you're making another good point. Every book, in terms of literary criticism, this is another way to interpret the Bible, every, every book has, uh, is a different style of literature even. So, so, like for instance, take the Psalms. Well, those are poems and hymns for the most part. Um, chrono uh, genealogies are really boring and really long, but they're also making theological points. We probably won't spend too much time in genealogies just because they're a beating to read. Um, but what often happens even in genealogies is there it's about about numbers and the number of generations from this thing to that thing and they're kind of counting and dating like it, it depends on the genealogy but they're making a theological point even with those um, but that's a very different way of reading it than our fundamentalist brothers and sisters who are who, who kind of look are looking for a different thing out of the Bible than what necessarily we might be that's going to become more apparent as we get into some of these stories. And that's not a criticism, by the way, of a different way of reading it. Yeah, we are not literalists. We are not literalists. So we believe that uh, what we're looking for when we read, and I'm giving you a Methodist orthodoxy here. I'm not trying to talk anybody else, anybody out of what they think or believe. But we're, we're, trying, we're looking for the theological truths in these stories. So when I look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, does God create the universe and everything in it in six days or in one day. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> the point is that God's the creator. Genesis 2 very clearly says in the day that God created. Well, we'll get there. Um, now, if I, was a, if I was a literalist or a fundamentalist, then I would need to make those two stories compatible. Like I would have to say that on the sixth day when God created humanity, that must be what's explained in chapter 2 of Genesis. But as a Methodist, I don't have to do that. Like, I can just read those two stories for on their own terms and look for the theology in them. It's the same way with the Gospels. The Gospels record very different accounts of Jesus' ministry. The highlights are the same. <laughs> He's the Son of God. Our salvation is in Him. He's clearly got a lot of teaching about how He wants us to live through His through his uh, incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection, we are in a right relationship with God. But, like, you can't read the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion 
and make those be one thing. You just can't. He's got different words in each of them. The, the, in the difference between John's gospel and the synoptic gospels, the, the days are different uh, in relation to the Passover. So as a Methodist, I, I can read that and say, okay, so it, John, when Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation uh, for, the, for the Passover, that means he's doing this, he's, he's comparing Jesus to the Passover lamb, which is actually not a sacrifice for sin at all. In the synoptics, when he, uh, the night before he dies is the Passover meal. So it's not the day of preparation. It can't be the day of preparation. So what he's saying there, he's, he's have, those three gospel authors are, are putting Jesus in the context of the whole Passover narrative. Like, I'm able, I, I don't have to make those things be the same. But there's still very rich theology in all of it. Yeah. 100%. So DJ is saying, um, uh, like, one way to look at this, and actually with the gospel you were talking about specifically, each of the gospel authors is writing to a different audience, a different like place and time. So John's probably written to, and Ephesus is probably the best guess for that, very late in the first century. And that Christian audience had a different set of things it was worried about than Mark's audience that was written 30 years earlier or more in, a different, in Palestine. And so... The circumstances are different. the The way the gospel speaks to them is different, and so the way that they're going to tell their story has different emphases. Luke's gospel, like for instance, here's a good example. In Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor." Anybody know? In spirit, right? Luke, in his Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor," not poor in spirit. Now, as someone who is not poor, poor in spirit sounds, you know, that speaks to me. <laughs> right so um and i'm not even i'm not even trying to make light of that it's uh it's how the gospel speaks to us today that matters same for the gospel authors yeah it's good there was somebody else yes probably in our pews actually yeah so yeah so sharon's making the point um for our podcast audience that um even within methodism there's a diversity of thought and that's absolutely true there are methodists that are uh more theologically conservative and more biblically conservative and there are the, uh, Methodists who are very theologically progressive or liberal and we're we've always been a big tent denomination Christ United has always been a big tent church that's absolutely true the the distinction I would make though is that we're all guided by the same discipline so even if we read the Bible in a more traditional way in terms of um, I mean so the topic on a lot of people's minds is human sexuality and what where the church is going to end up on that whether you're a Methodist who reads the Bible from a conservative perspective or a liberal perspective, we actually all do read it the same way. Like we're um, a fundamentalist Methodist is kind of an oxymoron. A traditional Methodist, absolutely. Conservative Methodist, absolutely. Um, but because we think that there are other sources and criteria for our theological task, that, that by ne- definition means that we don't think it's inerrant. Um, but you bring up a really important point, and I'm, I'm I'm sure that in this room there's a diversity of thought as well. Any other thoughts about that? Now, so my first year of seminary, I, I took Old Testament, and it it, it pushed me. <laughs> this notion of of thinking of the Bible as like, what do you mean God didn't drop it out of the sky as a completed thing? Like, how do I? If that didn't happen, then whoa, that puts a lot of responsibility on me to read it carefully. 
and come to my own conclusions on some stuff. And uh, I would say yes, actually. The Methodist way of approaching Scripture empowers absolutely every Methodist to be a theologian in their own right. Yes, sir. How, how far was I from what? Oh, mm, that's a good question. So the question was, how far was I in my first year of seminary from being a Catholic? Um, I mean, I guess technically, probably, that's a really good question. Um, probably five or six years. Yeah. I was used to people telling me what to think. I mean, that's a little, that's overstated. I was used to the the church having a very defined doctrine. And here's the, you know, here's the way the Pope thinks about it. Here's the way you should be thinking about it. That's kind of the way I was raised. Uh, but the metaphor that Roy Heller, who I talked about in a sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, used, and you, you have Roy? Okay. He may have still used this. He may have. Okay. So um, he said, think of your engagement with scripture as a cocktail party. And he said, and he said, he said, I'm an Episcopalian, so I can say this because wherever there's four Episcopalians, there's always a fifth. <laughs> but he, has he said that yet? Okay, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> he said, so you have a cocktail party, and you invite all of your heroes in the faith, and uh, you're inside hosting, and you're talking to Jesus, and you're talking to the disciples or whatever, and all of a sudden, there's this commotion out on the front lawn, and you go out on the front lawn, and there's Moses and Paul, and they're getting into a practically a brawl, and, and uh, Paul is saying, the law is no longer your taskmaster. And Moses is saying, are you kidding? I can't. I was up on that mountain for 40 days. The law is everything. <laughs> and at some point, they're going to look at you and ask you what you think. And it's good to have an answer. And I thought, mm, gosh, I guess. <laughs> I guess. But what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is with every single one of us. I mean, we, all of us have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Methodist theology, uh, it's Christ who, whose uh, cross redeems us and puts us in a right relationship with God. And then it's the Holy Spirit that works within us, moving us on to perfection, helping us to grow in our love for God and neighbor. And because the Holy Spirit is with us always, Jesus himself says this in in John's gospel, the Spirit's going to guide us into all truth. And some of us may be more studied on some subjects than others, for sure. Um, But ultimately, like our own agency as disciples in reason and experience, we, we kind of inherit scripture and tradition but reason and experience is about how we process our faith. And so, um, you know, I, I ended up, that was the most invigorating year after I got past being freaked out <laughs> about having, having, an answer, having an answer for Paul or Moses, <laughs> you know, on my front lawn. Okay, well, let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. So the thing about this first account, I, I prefer the the first account of Genesis. I love the kind of the sweep and the majesty of the six days of creation. Um, Probably has something to do with me being a pastor now that I resonate with the priestly account because, you know, priests and pastors seek to theologically make order of things. It's kind of the way we're trained. And this is certainly, um, you can certainly hear that in this story. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I mean, you can almost hear this as a liturgy. 
right? It's, it's just so majestic. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. This is based on a, an ancient understanding of the world, like that rain came from um, waters that were held above by something. Like we, we know a lot more about meteorology now than they did then. But under, knowing what or um, making sense of the world as they understood it, this is how they would describe it. Verse 7, so God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us, us, make humankind in our image. Not bring forth, different verb there according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind. It's not two people. God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and let the and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so God saw that he had made everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it rested a God rested from all the work that he had done in creation these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created I love that account now there is do you know that there are two different versions of the Ten Commandments well I didn't 
so I, it's not a pop quiz. <laughs> uh, there are two different versions of the, of the Ten Commandments, and in one of them, um, do you know why we rest? Why, why do we have a Sabbath? We have a Sabbath. No, go ahead. God rested from all his work. That's right. And you know who wrote that version of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> the, the one who wrote this version of the uh, creation story. The other one, the one that's in Exodus, the one that Moses comes down, that's in Deuteronomy, by the way. And that gets weird because it's, it, it's in this document, but it's this account. Um, the one that's in Exodus, when Moses comes down from the mountain, you know what that one says? You shall rest because you were slaves once in Egypt. <laughs> and you've, I'm sure we've all heard both, right? But one of them is trying to make a different point about covenant. And one of them is making a point about following the orderliness of God. And when you when you know this now, and when you read those two accounts, you say, oh, yeah, of course, that's the priestly account. Of course. I mean, you can see it. it. It sounds like the same author because it is the same author. But but if you have just read this account of creation and you go to the first version of the Ten Commandments, you're like, well, what about resting on the seventh day? I mean, that's in there too, right? It is. It's just in a different, different section. Okay, now we're going to read the earliest one. And in this earliest account, this is not the God, like the majestic, epic God, who is creating things in this orderly process just by speaking. This is a God that's in the dirt and it's making us out of the dirt. And now that you know that these are two different accounts written literally centuries apart, you can hear the difference in the stories. Why? Yeah. So the question is, um, God rested on the seventh day very clearly in Genesis 1, but our Sabbath is on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, and that's because of the resurrection. So Jesus Christ rose on, on the first day of the week. And um, Seventh-day Adventists, by the way, yeah, 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 they're like, um, hello, it's right here. <laughs> yeah, as do our Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, the question is, do people still call it the Sabbath on Sunday? Sadly, culturally, no, right? Everything's open, and there's no blue laws anymore. And I'm a little old-fashioned like this. I wish I wish we didn't have sports, uh, kids sports on Sunday. I'm fine with the NFL <laughs> playing on Sunday, but I don't want my kids playing on Sunday, which they end up doing. Um, so the, the way this gets interpreted now in modern Christian spirituality, typically, is that everyone should take a Sabbath, but the day that it falls on is really of... It doesn't really matter as long as we are resting intentionally because even God did and because we were slaves once in Egypt. It's both and for us. But it doesn't have to be Saturday or Sunday. Right. I definitely don't. It's <laughs> because, you know, yeah. Yeah. Everybody in the church is up at 5 in the morning on Saturday or on Sunday, rather. So we got to push our Sabbath to a different day. I'm not in the office on Fridays, by the way. That's Sabbath for me. Sometimes. Okay. So now let's read this earlier account. And here it is right in the beginning. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That doesn't say seven or six. It's the day. When no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Like this is a totally different thing. Yeah, for us. Yeah. So, all right. So he's asking about, it's Derek, right? He's asking about verse four. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So you're asking what, what's up with the generations? 
Um, so uh, does something pre- So the question is, what's up with the generations thing? And does something precede it? I'm just going to read you my note here on the, this is from my study Bible. So specifically on 2.4. So this verse rendered in some translations as a single whole sentence forms a symmetry, heavens and earth, earth and heavens, marking the transition between the creation and garden of, and the Garden of Eden story. So these are the generations, and the variant translations, these are the descendants, introduces the story as it introduces that of Noah. So what, what they're saying there is that that verse is a transition verse between this first account that says one thing and this other account that says something very different. So I think what most scholars from the perspective that I'm arguing from or talking about from would say that uh, an editor had to figure out how to tell these two stories back to back. Nothing more scientific than that. Yeah, just, um, well, how do I go from six days to this day? How about, I got it, generations. Um, it's misleading if you expect them to be harmonized. It's just a transition if you don't expect them to have to harmonize. Because if they're both making the same theological point, that God is the creator, I mean, we, listen, we know this is not the way the world, the world was created, right? I mean, this is not the way it worked. Everybody knows that. A big bang. Like, there's lots of cosmic stuff going on. God can create however God chooses to create. We know a lot more now than they did uh, here when they were writing about this. And so it's okay that we know more now than they did then writing about something that happened before they could conceive. But we all believe the same thing, meaning us, whatever our own theological perspectives are, plus the Yahweh source who was writing earliest, and then the priestly source who was writing uh, centuries after that. The point is the same, that God is the creator of everything. Nobody, Nobody was there taking notes when it happened. But we know that this is that that God created, and so the priestly account says, "Well, here's what makes sense for me: God creates out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the word, is the phrase in Latin, and does it in a very orderly way because I'm a priest and I believe God has to be very orderly for me to make sense of God." And then this Yahwist writing, telling a story around the campfire, like from a long, long time ago, would never have thought in this systematic. Uh, six day God speaking and creating what makes sense to somebody sitting around the fire and telling campfire stories is that God creates like you and I create playing around in the dirt so it's a very anthropomorphic God in, in chapter 2 which is a very different view than the priestly account but that's okay because they're, they're making the same theological point okay so um, in the day of the Lord made the heavens so where were we? we left off in verse 6 but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground then the Lord God formed man Adam from the dust of the ground not humankind Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden you know in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. I love that, by the way. That's going to come up at the very end of the story in Revelation 22. But that's way that's 20 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> A river flows out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flows around the whole land of Habila, 
where there's gold, you know, Havila, the gold place, and the gold of that land's good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. Like, this is totally random. Right? I mean, none of us, but, okay. Uh, sure, we'll just take him as word for it. The name of the second river is Gihon. That's the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. We recognize that one. Flows out of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Great. Okay, I know that one. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. To, like, this is God playing in the dirt. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. That doesn't happen that way because God's a gracious God. But that's next week. We'll talk about that. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper and as his partner. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air. Totally like it's out of order, but that's okay because he's making the same theological point. It's still God who's creating. It's just a different version of the story. Um, let's see. Whatever man called him, that was his name. That's verse 19, verse 20. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man. This one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Only if it has to be so do those two stories harmonize. <laughs> but they don't have to be so. I mean, we, we can read those two stories, and when you read them um, you know, in Hebrew, it's, it's also, you know, you can tell somebody who's, you can tell a, you can tell a campfire tale from um, a classical Greek narrative. Right, you can by the way the by the vocabulary, the pacing, all that. Those two stories are entirely different, but they make the same same theological point. And the and what I want us to take away today is that that's okay because we read this book looking for the theology in it, and not for the de the details of how history unfolded. That's exactly right. Now it's a little bit different when we get into the Gospels. Um, the the closer we get to us the more some of those historical details actually do matter. Um, but for our purposes in Genesis, we are talking about this epic book that sets the stage for our entire salvation history. And what we're going to be looking for in these 50 chapters are not the, the specific details that upon which our faith hang, because that's not the way it works. We're looking for the theology that sets the trajectory of our salvation history. And for, for us, in Genesis 1 and 2, the the thing that is undeniable and the, the point that both these stories are making is that we are God's good creation. Not just God's good creation, God's very good creation. Um, and beginning next week, we'll talk about how we get into a relationship with God. Bam, that takes us right to 4.30. So we only got we only got through two chapters, but that's okay, right? So we're, we are on track. All right, thanks, y'all. It's really good to see you. Really good to be back in this room. Uh, oh, Reagan wants to say something? Yeah, so copy of the syllabus back there. Please do check in or sign in, and we will see you next week. We're going to talk about Genesis 3 through 11, so it will be a little bit faster paced next week. Thanks, y'all. God bless you.